Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1. We're continuing a series that we've just begun called Apocalypse, and Apocalypse just means revelation or revealing. And we're going to walk through the book of Revelation. And today we're going to be focusing in on chapter 1, just verses 4 through 6. Okay, just verses 4 through 6. And you might be wondering, if we're going to go through the whole book of Revelation at this pace, we're not going to finish for three or four years. But we are going to pick up the pace. Okay? Um, after we get through next week, next week's going to be verses 7 and 8, and then we're going to pick up the pace a good bit and take bigger sections at a time. But there's a couple of reasons we're going slowly here at the beginning. First, these verses are loaded uh, they're the kind of verses that we often just read quickly or skip over looking to get to the good stuff, but we should read these carefully. There's a lot of helpful stuff here. And the descriptions of God in these verses are the things that we need to understand to make sense of the rest of the book. <coughs> Excuse me. John is very carefully telling us some things about God, some things about Christ, some things about what Christ has accomplished on behalf of his people. And the things that he's telling us lay the foundation for what is coming in the rest of the book. A second reason that I want to start slow, and this really specifically applies more to next week, but a little bit to this week, is that I'm trying to give you a picture of the main message of this book. Um, in a sense, I'm stealing John's thunder, but I want you to understand the book. So... I'm trying to lay out for you what to expect as we continue. And it may get a little repetitious at times, but if you start recognizing things you've already heard, then that means you're getting it. You're starting to get the sense of what the book is all about. Now, remember last week we mentioned uh, a very important principle of interpretation. We said that the best way for us to understand this book is to let Scripture be our guide. We want to see how John is using the rest of the Bible to communicate his message. And that's going to help us to understand this book. We said that of the 404 verses in Revelation, it's something like 278 of them have either allusions or quotes from the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament-driven book. So I will show you lots of verses from other places in the Bible this morning on the PowerPoint, and sometimes we'll turn to a few other places. I try to limit it, but there will be three or four other places that we're going to turn so that you can see it yourself. But that's how we're going to be able to understand this book. We did a quick survey of the book last week, and we said that the main message is a legal complaint that Jesus is bringing against Jerusalem and against the Jewish nation for rejecting him as Messiah and murdering him. That legal complaint results in judgment on Jerusalem and Israel, which culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. God had called Israel, he had called himself Israel's husband throughout the Old Testament. But now, because of her unfaithfulness and idolatry, he divorces her, and takes a new bride, the church. And the book finishes with Jesus and his faithful bride, the new Jerusalem, together forever in the new heavens and earth. So I'd like to read the first eight verses, even though our focus this morning is going to be on verses four through six. So follow along with me as I read Revelation chapter one, verses one through eight. 
The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So the first thing that we have here as John addresses this letter is John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, as we noted last week, this book is written by the Apostle John himself. Okay, The same John who was a disciple of Jesus, who wrote the Gospel of John, and who wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The seven churches that he's referring to will be listed in verse 11. It's the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And these churches are in an area that was known as proconsular Asia. It was under Roman control, as was most of the biblical world at this time. These churches are in what we today call Asia Minor or the country of Turkey. So here is where they're located in the Mediterranean. And you can see those seven churches highlighted here. And you can also see Patmos. That's the island that John is on. He's been exiled there, okay, sent there by the government. And he is writing a letter to the churches and sending it to those seven churches. And let me pause just a minute to talk about interpretation here. Because these are real historical churches in his, real historical cities. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about the importance of interpreting Revelation literally. But we have to ask, what does that mean? Interpreting things literally should mean interpreting it as literature, as the kind of literature that it is. And you don't read all literature the same way. You read a blog post differently from a comic book. And that's different from the box scores of the basketball game, which is different from a school textbook, which is different from a crime novel. You have to know what kind of literature you're reading in order to read it literally. When some people talk about interpreting Revelation literally, they often mean that you should read it like a textbook. So, for example, they would say that when John speaks of a thousand-year reign of Christ, it's literally a thousand years, no more, no less. And as much as possible, if you're interpreting it that way, you try to take the visions literally. But it starts to become very bizarre when you read the things that are there. There are a couple of problems with that approach that I'll mention here. First, this is apocalyptic literature. It uses signs and symbols to communicate. That's literally how this literature works. 
and some of the symbols are standard. So whether you're reading the book of Revelation or you're reading some other Jewish apocalyptic literature from outside the Bible, if you come across horns, you know that those horns symbolize power and authority. That's just what horns mean in apocalyptic literature. It symbolizes power. And numbers, like a thousand, are usually, often, symbolic. A second problem with that kind of interpretation, though, is this. People who want to take the visions that we'll get to starting in chapter 4 and then further in chapters 6 through 19, if you want to take those in a woodenly literal sense, so a thousand years is literally a thousand years, and the New Jerusalem is literally a cube that is 1,380 miles tall, balancing on planet Earth, those same interpreters come to the beginning of the book where John is just giving this standard greeting to these churches, and they say that this is symbolic. The seven churches are symbolic of ages of the church. It's not written to literal churches. They're just symbols for these time periods. And everyone who interprets it that way always says that we're in the last age right before the return of Christ. But that's not what's happening here. These few verses here are just a greeting. Now, there are some, there are some things in here that have some symbolic significance. But you have to let the rest of the book drive that. When you come up with a symbol in the greeting that shows up later in the book, then you know that John was taking the vision from later in the book and he's introducing it at the beginning of his letter. These seven churches, because it's numbered seven, there is a sense in which seven is the fullness of something. So this is probably supposed to indicate to us the fullness of the church. But what that means is not that this is a, a roadmap for how history unfolds, as much as it is, this is indicating a message that applies to the whole church in every age. And so it's an important message for us too. But we can't lose sight of the fact that these are real historical churches facing real historical persecution, real historical situations. And the order that they're listed in follows an actual road. It's a Roman postal route. So when John writes it and he says, take it to these seven churches, they're in the order that the messenger would take them. That's the, that, that's the order. It's not an order for all of human history. It's just an order of how the messenger is supposed to deliver these churches. But that means that this message is something that we can understand and it's something we can benefit from and we may find ourselves in similar circumstances. So this is a message for us too. It's directly for them in their historical situation, but it's applicable then a step removed to us today in the situations we find ourselves in. John goes on then to say, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Grace and peace is a fairly standard greeting to begin a letter, but it's worth our time to pause and think about it for a minute. Grace is when God chooses to save sinners through Christ, not because of anything good in the sinner, but simply because he chose to set his love on them graciously. Grace is the opposite of merit or works. The fact that we're saved by grace demonstrates that God is completely sovereign and free. He chooses to save whom he will. When God revealed his glory in Christ, when Christ came to earth, John tells us in his gospel 
that grace was central to that revelation. John 1.14, we have seen his glory, glory as, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peace has been described by Joel Beakey as the reflection of God's smile. The reflection of God's smile. When God shows his favor to us in Christ, saving us by grace, the result is that we have peace with God. Grace and peace. And John's now going to tell us where this grace and peace come from. And the first part of that is here on the screen. It goes on to talk about the seven spirits and Jesus Christ. So let me just kind of talk about that whole thing for a minute before we look at them one by one. The one who is and who was and who is to come, that's God the Father. The seven spirits who are before his throne, and this is going to take some explaining in a few minutes, we'll get there, but that's the Holy Spirit. And this grace and peace also comes, verse 5, from Jesus Christ. So these three, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, are the Trinity. God is one God in three persons, Father, Spirit and Son. And John puts them in a bit of an unusual order. Usually we find the Trinity or we talk about the Trinity in theological order, Father, Son, and Spirit. But here John reverses the last two, Father, Spirit, Son. And so you kind of have to ask the question, why is he doing that? And I think the answer is he's using the order that he sees in the visions of chapters four and five in the throne room of God. He sees the throne and the father's on the throne and he's described first and then the spirit and finally the lamb, Jesus. That's the order that John uses here. It's the same as if you started at the very center of the tabernacle or the temple. In the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant and that symbolizes the, the very footstool of the throne of God. And then you go out into the holy place and you have the lampstand with the, the lamps, the fires that are burning on it, and that symbolizes the Spirit of God. And then you go on out into the courtyard and you find the altar where the sacrificial lamb was slain, which pointed forward to Christ, who was sacrificed on our behalf. And so it's almost like a, a liturgical or a worship order. You begin with the Father and moving out from the throne, then the Spirit and then the Son. Father, Spirit, and Son. And the Father is described as him who is and who was and who is to come. Present, past, future. Remembering our principle, letting scripture be our guide, this probably refers to Exodus 3.14, where God said to Moses, I am who I am. <clears throat> and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When God gave this name to his people, what was he telling us? <clears throat> Let me give you four things quickly. Number one, God exists. The Puritan John Flavel wrote that this name, I am, communicates the reality of his being in opposition to idols, which are but imaginary and fantastic things. So God exists. He really exists. Second, God exists of his own power, independently. God does not depend on anyone or anything else to exist. He has the power of life in himself. Third, he's eternal and unchanging. God often gives promises to his people, and we can count on those promises in part because God doesn't change. 
He is. He's the same today and yesterday and tomorrow. And fourth, God has the power of life in himself. And not only does God have the power to exist himself, he's also the source of life for all others that exist. John Calvin said it this way. He said, God is said to have life in himself, not only because he alone lives by his own inherent power, but because containing in himself the fullness of life, he communicates life to all things. And similarly, another reformer from Geneva in Switzerland, a century after Calvin, Benedict Pictet said, creatures have life from another, God from none. Creatures have life from another, from God. God from none. He exists in himself. And all of these things are wrapped up in this description of God as I am or as the one who is and who was and who is to come. Then we come to this strange reference. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Okay, so first of all, note that the seven spirits are before the throne of God the Father. Other than the book of Revelation, the word throne shows up the most in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, which makes sense because Matthew focuses on uh, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. But in Revelation, throne shows up 46 times. This is a book about dominion and rule. And we have to remember that as we study it together. Now, what does the phrase seven spirits mean? I want to show you that this is simply talking about the Holy Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. But remember, we're in a book chock full of symbolism, and a lot of it is drawn from the Old Testament. And this is one of those places where there's a vision coming later in Revelation that John is drawing from in how he describes the Holy Spirit here in the greeting. And as we let Scripture be our guide, there are a couple of places for us to look, some of them inside the book of Revelation, but some of them in the Old Testament as well. One important passage is Isaiah chapter 11. Turn there with me. Okay, turn to Isaiah chapter 11. <clears throat> In this chapter, Isaiah 11, we have a prophecy about the Messiah, specifically about the Messiah being a descendant of David. Okay, so he's royal who rules or judges in righteousness and justice. So if the book of Revelation is about Jesus' legal complaint and God the judge is on his throne and Jesus is rightfully executing judgment on his enemies, then this is a very appropriate place for John to draw his imagery from. So if you're there in, in Isaiah chapter 11, <clears throat> look with me at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Okay, so the Messiah will be descended from Jesse, David's father. David was anointed to be king, and he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's why when David repents from his sin, he prays, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He's not praying because he thinks he's going to lose his salvation. He's praying to ask God not to take the anointing and the kingship away from him. <clears throat> the anointing validated his reign as king. And just like 
David was descended from Jesse and was anointed to be king, so too the Messiah will be descended from Jesse and will be anointed to be king. So verse 2 of Isaiah 11 then describes the anointing. Look with me at verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the one spirit of God is here described in seven ways, the sevenfold spirit of God. And this is likely part of what John has in mind when he refers to the seven spirits who are before the throne. Verse 2 says it's the spirit of the Lord, of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. So we have seven aspects there describing the one Holy Spirit. Now turn back with me to the book of Revelation, but go to chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. So not only do we get clues from the Old Testament, we also get some clues from inside the book of Revelation itself. And I'm kind of trying to take you on a logical journey to see where John arrives at this language. So Revelation chapter 5, look with me at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Okay, so who is the lamb? That's Jesus, okay? And then it says, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now again, you're not supposed to picture this literally as if Jesus is a lamb with seven literal horns and seven literal eyes. This is symbolism talking about what Jesus has. He has seven horns. That's a, the fullness of authority and power. He has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So here, the seven spirits are associated with seven eyes, which the lamb has. Okay, hold that thought. That's a reference to Zechariah chapter 3 and 4. You don't have to turn there. Let me just summarize for you. This is a very complicated and difficult passage. You can go back and read it later. Um, but let me just mention a couple of things. In Zechariah 3 there is a stone that has seven eyes. So that seems to be where John is getting the imagery of seven eyes. Okay? Then in Zechariah 4, there's a lampstand, okay? a lampstand with seven lamps on it. And if you know your Jewish symbolism, that's a menorah. Okay? It's, it's like what was in the tabernacle in the temple. Okay? So first, the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits, are associated in Zechariah with seven burning lamps on a lampstand. Now we're going to see in a couple of weeks, in, here in Revelation 1, we've got seven lampstands. And the lampstands represent seven churches. John tells us that. Now second, in Zechariah 4, when Zechariah asks about the meaning of what he's seeing with these lampstands, the answer given is, that Zerubbabel is going to rebuild the temple. There's themes there that are in here in Revelation as Jesus is building his people and we are the temple, but we don't have time to go there this morning. But this, this rebuilding that Zerubbabel is going to carry out is going to be accomplished by the power of the Spirit of God. And the way that it's phrased is this, 
not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So the lamps in Zechariah are symbolically powered, supplied with oil by the spirit. And Zechariah is told that the seven lamps are the eyes of the Lord so that go throughout the earth. So we have this connection of eyes and lamp and spirit. And that seems to be what John is drawing on. So in Revelation 1.4, when John says that grace and peace are coming from God the Father and the seven spirits who are before the throne, he seems to be indicating that what God the Father is going to do, what he's going to accomplish, is going to be accomplished by the power of the Spirit. That's the association from Zechariah. So now turn to Revelation 3. Revelation 3. This is the beginning, I'm going to have you look at, of the letter to the church in Sardis. Revelation 3, and just look at verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, we are told. But what I want you to note is this. Who is it that's sending this message to the churches? It's Jesus. And Jesus is sending the message to the churches. And he's described as him who has the seven spirits of God. Jesus has the seven spirits of God. So remember, in chapter 5, we saw that the Lamb has the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. In the book of Acts, as Peter's preaching, he says this in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, okay, note that, received from the Father the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So as a result of his resurrection and his exaltation, Jesus receives the Holy Spirit from the Father and he pours out the Holy Spirit on the church. So Jesus is the one who has the Spirit. And when John writes that Jesus has the seven spirits of God, it's just another way of saying what Acts tells us. Jesus has the Spirit from the Father and he gives the Spirit to the churches, which is why the lampstands are lit. All of that is the imagery that John is kind of pulling together. Isaiah 11, Zechariah 3, what Peter preaches, what he sees in the visions, and all of that is coming together to, the, to give us this description of the seven spirits. But it's really just telling us it's the Holy Spirit. That's who Jesus has and gives. Then we come to what John says about Jesus Christ himself. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So John tells us here three things about Jesus. And I want to show you kind of one thing about all three of them together. And then we'll take them each individually. Psalm 89 is a psalm of praise for God's faithfulness and his steadfast love, particularly in light of his promises given to David. Here's what Psalm 89 says, verses 36 and 37. 
His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. So just like the moon is always there in the sky each night. A faithful witness. So too the throne of David's descendant will be there forever, a faithful witness. And John applies that phrase to Jesus. So the fact that Jesus is on the throne is a faithful witness, but John kind of is taking it a step further and he's saying Jesus is himself the faithful witness. And that's going to have legal connotations as he brings forth these charges. And we'll talk a little bit more about the idea of the witness in a minute. But Psalm 89 also says this, verse 27. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So here are the other two phrases that John applies to Jesus. The firstborn and the ruler of kings on earth. So clearly, when John gives us these three descriptions of Jesus, he's got Psalm 89 in mind. If we had time to dig in, we'd see that there's a lot about that psalm that applies to what John is saying. It's telling us that God's promises will stand. He'll be faithful to the house of David in the person of that descendant who will be on the throne forever. David's descendant will reign over all of his enemies even when present circumstances don't look like it because God's love is steadfast and sure. Now, let's think a little bit more about each of the titles. First of all, the faithful witness. As we said before, Jesus is making a legal complaint about Israel's unfaithfulness, but Jesus is the witness in the case, and he is faithful. And of course, there's the lesson that we should follow in his footsteps, and we should be faithful even when we're tempted to get discouraged because of opposition or hostility. But there's a bit more here. Sometimes people will point out that the word for witness here is martus. It's the word that we get our word martyr from. And for us, a martyr is someone who loses their life because they're faithful to a person or a country or a belief. But this word's meaning has changed. It's evolved over time. That meaning really just kind of begins to come about with the New Testament. I don't think that's primarily what John has in mind because John is working mostly with Old Testament categories. And in the Old Testament, a witness was someone who provided legal testimony, but also, and this is going to sound very strange to us today, the witness also participated in carrying out the sentence if someone was convicted. In other words, a witness was also, in a sense, an executioner. Listen to what the Old Testament law says in Deuteronomy 17. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. That's a great legal principle that's enshrined in in our own legal system. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So the witness is the first to carry out the sentence, the execution. You can see the same thing in Deuteronomy 13.9. 
So when in the rest of the book of Revelation, we see Jesus executing judgment against Jerusalem and Israel for their unfaithfulness, that's him being a faithful witness. They've committed idolatry, running after other gods. And the ultimate act of unfaithfulness was their rejection and murder of Jesus. And Jesus testifies against them. And then as the faithful witness carries out their execution. The second phrase is the firstborn of the dead. When John calls Jesus the firstborn, he's not saying that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist and now there's a time that he came into existence. The word is instead telling us about his position. It's a position of honor, a position at the head of the people that he represents. It's like being the oldest son. The oldest son represented the family. And Jesus, as the firstborn, is the head of his family, the church. So how did he come into that position? And what is John telling us? Let's take a quick look at what scripture says about this. I won't make you turn there. I'm just going to kind of buzz through five key verses to help you see what this is getting at. First of all, Acts 13. We bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Excuse me. So here in Acts 13, Paul is preaching in Antioch and he says that God has kept his promises by raising Jesus from the dead. And that resurrection was God declaring that Jesus is his son. It was like a birth. It's like a birth announcement. It's the public statement of who Jesus really is. And Paul's quoting here Psalm 2, which says in verses 7 and 8, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. That's the part that Paul quotes. But listen to what else is here. What follows from that. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So this public statement in the resurrection that Jesus is God's son is connected to his having authority as king over all the nations of the earth. Paul says in Romans 1 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? How did that declaration get made? By his resurrection from the dead. And then further, in Colossians 1, Paul writes, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Paul uses this title firstborn um, because of the resurrection. They're all royal statements. He has, Jesus has this high privileged position as the firstborn. But Paul also says here, did you notice that he's the beginning? The beginning of what? Well, we get the answer to that in the book of Revelation. In the letter to the church at Laodicea, Jesus says that he is the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Specifically, what that means is, 
He's the beginning of the new creation. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was the first to be part of the new creation. And all who are raised after him join him in the new creation. He's the preeminent one, the Lord of the new creation, the firstborn of the dead. And he's also the ruler of kings on earth. Let me just pause and because and, I, I want you to hear these phrases. This, this is not one of the messages that you're going to walk out with three principles for better communication with your neighbors and coworkers. This is the kind of message where we just need to see who God is. We need to see who Jesus is. And, and John just kind of piles up phrase after phrase that should blow us away with who our God is and who Jesus is. That's the sense that I want you to get as we're, as we're reading through these. Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. The word ruler here is archon. It means first in rank. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's not just the king of the kings of Israel or king of the kings of Judah. He's the ruler of all the kings on earth. I'm convinced that this is one of the biggest, most major problems we have in the church today. We don't believe this. We don't believe that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. We live with no expectation that our rulers should bow the knee to Jesus. We think it would somehow be like a violation of justice to, to say that God's rules should be the rules the nation lives by. But God says that Jesus is the archon. He's the ruler of kings on earth. They all owe him their allegiance. The mayor of Wadsworth, the governor of Ohio, and the president of the United States, all are subject to Jesus. The sheriff, the generals in our military, the Congress, the Supreme Court, every one of them will answer to Jesus. Turn with me to Psalm 2. Okay, turn back in your Bible to Psalm 2. This psalm proclaims the universal kingship of the Messiah. And this is a psalm we need to get through our heads as the church. <clears throat> psalm 2. <clears throat> it's not long. I'm going to read the whole thing. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the rulers of this world do not want to be bound to what God and his king Jesus say. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God is saying that the king he has established, Jesus, is going to be the king who rules. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's what Paul was quoting. 
Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So all the nations of the earth, the ends of the earth, they all belong to Jesus. What should the response be when the rulers of this world hear that message? Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All nations are his heritage, his inheritance, and they are all commanded to submit to him. This is the reason for persecution of Christians by the state. Jesus has asserted sovereignty and dominion. They must either submit or be smashed, according to Psalm 2. And the state that does not want to submit to Jesus also wants to stamp out the opposition. Any who do serve Jesus. Any who would get in the way of their agenda. The problem today is that we as the church don't even think it's our place to get in their way. Because we don't believe that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. It would have been a lot easier for the Christians in John's day to simply proclaim the message that Jesus wants to be Lord of your heart. That's where we tend to leave it as the church today. But that's not Jesus' message. That's not the message of the entire Bible. David Chilton writes, Toothless, impotent Christianity is a goldmine for statism. It keeps men's attention focused on the clouds while the state picks their pockets and steals their children. But that's, that's not the kind of message that Jesus is proclaiming. He is the ruler of kings on earth. It all belongs to him. Politics belongs to Jesus. Education belongs to Jesus. Economics belongs to Jesus. Medicine belongs to Jesus. John says it in the present tense. Jesus is ruler of the kings of the earth. It's true now. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. I want you to see an example of how this plays out. Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this lesson. He was a great king. But God is greater. Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to read some of the verses in this chapter, and some of it I'll just summarize and kind of skip through to help you get the gist of the story here. But let's begin with the first three verses. Daniel 4, 1 through 3. And this is a letter now, a proclamation that is going out from King Nebuchadnezzar to all of the peoples that he reigns over. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. From there, Nebuchadnezzar goes on to tell the story of the dream that he had about a great tree that was decreed to be cut down. The tree was Nebuchadnezzar, and the reason for him being cut down, verse 17, 
was to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. <clears throat> men. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Daniel interprets the dream for the king and he tells him that he's going to be cut down to live like an animal. Verse 25 till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. <clears throat> and Daniel encourages the king to submit to God's law, God's standard of righteousness. Verse 27, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Note that God is judging Nebuchadnezzar, who is a king of a Gentile nation. He's not Israelite. And the standard that God uses for this Gentile king is his own righteousness, his own law. God expects all men everywhere to submit to him. So about a year later, Nebuchadnezzar is up on a wall and he's looking out over his kingdom and he's admiring his kingdom. And he says to himself, verse 30, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And look at verse 31. <clears throat> this is, to me, one of the most powerful verses in all of scripture. Okay, think of what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. God is sovereign over the greatest kings of earth. Then look at the king's response in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inha inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way, but he learned. And whether it's in this life or the next, all will submit to Jesus. Joel Beakey, writing of this world's rulers, says, Like Nebuchadnezzar, they should give God public praise, repent of their sins, and govern with justice and mercy.
Jesus himself told us that the crown rights belong to him. After his resurrection, before he ascended into heaven, he gathers his disciples and what does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He does not say all authority just in heaven. All authority on earth belongs to Jesus. He is the ruler of kings on earth. He is the Lord and judge of history. No matter what earthly tyrant or abusive ruler rises to power and arrogantly struts across the world stage, Jesus is still on his throne. And every king, every ruler, every president, every government official who seeks to bear authority is subject to Jesus Christ. As John draws this greeting in Revelation 1 to a close, he says, he gives this amazing Trinitarian greeting that we've seen and proclaims these fantastic truths about God, especially about Christ. Now he turns to doxology, to praise. The word doxology comes from the word for glory, doxa. John is ascribing glory here to Christ. And the things that John ascribes glory to Christ for are the things that Christ has done for us. And I'm going to be much more brief here. To him who loves us. Note that John very definitely puts this in the present tense. Jesus is not distant and removed. He's present with his people. This would be a word of encouragement for those believers in these seven churches who are facing persecution to know that Jesus loves them. How is that love shown? Well, one way is found in the next phrase and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This, of course, points to the work of Christ on the cross. On the cross, he took the penalty of people's sins so that we are freed from our sins. This verb is in the past. That's because this is something that's already been accomplished. Completed. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's accomplished. But the language that John uses here intentionally draws our mind to the exodus from Egypt. We have been freed by his blood. The Israelites were slaves in bondage in Egypt until God freed them. And when he did it, it was at the Passover. Those who were under the blood were the ones who escaped the judgment and were freed. So too now, Jesus has accomplished a second exodus. We have been freed from the bondage of sin by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. And made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. When Israel was freed from Egypt, God brought them out into the wilderness and made them into a nation. He gave them his covenant. He kind of formed them into a people. In Exodus 19.6, he says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what he told them. Right after he freed them from Egypt at the Passover, he formed them into a people, a kingdom of priests to serve him. And now that same language is applied to the church. We have been freed by his blood and we've been made into a kingdom and priests to God. First Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race. This is picking up Israel language 
but it's applying it to the new Israel, the church. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus is our great high priest, and he's the king of kings, and since we have union with him, we share in those roles as well, serving as priests and kings. Then John says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The doxology that he began in the middle of verse 5 when he said, to him who loves us, he now completes. To him, the one that he just described, be glory and dominion. John ascribes glory to Christ because of all the things he just explained. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Calvin has a helpful comment here. It's a short paragraph. Let me just read it and listen to what he says. He reads this verse, and then he says, That is, I will not suffer my glory to be diminished, which it would be if I were found to be false or fickle in my promises. He therefore declares that he will abide by his promises because he wishes to vindicate his glory and preserve it entire, that it may not be in any respect diminished. This is a remarkable passage, Calvin says, by which we are taught that the glory of God is chiefly visible in his fulfillment of what he has promised. And hence, we obtain a singular confirmation of our faith, that the Lord never deceives, never swerves from his promises, and nothing can hinder what he has once determined. So God's glory is seen in his keeping his promises. Paul writes to the Corinthians that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Think about it. All the stuff that we just saw in verses 5 and 6, all that Jesus said and hoped in the Gospels is here seen as accomplished. Promises kept. These promises were given to Israel, but we see that there's a new Israel, a new kingdom of priests. The promises were given to Jerusalem, but there's a new Jerusalem. The promises were given to the bride, but the bride was discovered to be a harlot, and now there's a new bride of Christ. Listen to the doxology that John writes here, again, with that in mind. To him who loves us, he loves his bride, the church who has freed us from our sins by his blood, blood that was shed by unfaithful Israel, has made us a kingdom. No longer is it the Jewish kingdom that is the focus, but it's now the kingdom of Christ. He's made us priests. The Jewish priesthood is replaced by the priesthood of all believers. To him be glory. Israel used to possess the glory of God. Now the glory is in the church. Dominion. Jesus, whom the Jews crucified, has been made both Lord and Christ. The whole Trinity, Father, Spirit, and Son, bears witness to the truth of this. Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And we have been made the people of this king, to whom belongs all the glory 
And our calling is to submit to him and to serve him faithfully. That's the vision of God and of Christ that John wants planted in our minds as we begin to unfold the rest of this book. Lord, I pray that we would have this vision of who you are in our minds and that it would make a difference in our lives. Sometimes there are uh, instructions in scripture that are very simple, practical things telling us to do this or to not do that. And the passage we've looked at this morning is not that kind of passage, but I pray that everyone hearing this message this morning would understand that, that what we're being told makes a difference. It makes a difference in how we live. Do we live with the expectation that Jesus is truly the ruler of kings on earth? That he's ruling and reigning? That, that every person we meet is responsible to show allegiance to Jesus? Are we honest spokes, spokesmen of this king? Or are we too shy and quiet and afraid to, to proclaim the lordship and the majesty and the glory of this one who's been described for us this morning? God, give us courage to see Jesus and his world the way that you do. We pray this in his name. Amen.